Good morning. My name is uh, Matt Wiley. I am a pastoral intern here at Trinity Harbor. And the scary thing is I've just finished my first year of seminary. So uh, you've got Ethan, the graduate, and the first year. So the, the interns are uh, here in full force this morning, and it's good. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Famous, famous uh, story. You know, when I was about four or five years old, I can't remember which, uh, I became intrigued with something magical. Ohio blue tip strike anywhere matches. Those things were amazing. And I had seen their power demonstrated many times when my dad would light a fire or uh, start the grill those things, I, I just couldn't get enough. And one day, I walked through the kitchen and I saw the box of magic power sitting there on the counter. And I grabbed as many matches as my two tiny little hands could hold and ran outside to the side of the house. And there I am standing, staring at this brick. And I take that magic Ohio blue tip ma- match and I just... And wow, it lights up. And I am entranced by this magical flame that has, I mean, I am man, hear me roar. This was awesome. I have just created fire. I couldn't get enough of it. So the next one and the next one and the next one. I am just lighting matches and watching them just burn down. Uh, my five-year-old imagination is running wild. This is the greatest thing ever. And I quickly go through all of my matches. Yet, the problem is I'm not, I hadn't quite grown uh, in my ability to conceal my sin like I can now. Um, and unfortunately, I left the evidence of burnt matchsticks on the side of the house. And my mother came out and saw them and quickly grabbed me and took me to the fire station where a close friend of ours was the fire chief. He proceeded to tell me of the dangers of playing with matches and told me a story of a boy five years old who was playing with Ohio blue tip strike anywhere matches in his home. And he was actually inside and had caught his mattress on fire and his house then caught on fire, and he burned his house down. And not only that, but he was actually severely burned. He didn't just tell me the story. He showed me pictures of a burned house and what burned skin looks like. It scared me. I wasn't going to be playing with matches anytime soon. Not only fear of burning the house down, but there was also the fear of my mother and father um, wringing my neck. So uh, that fear got me good. I did not play with fire until I was older and more foolish. Um, But in our passage this morning, we see clearly that playing with fire is dangerous. And King David is playing with fire, and it gets out of control. And King David gets burned. 
It's a familiar story you've heard many, many times. We're going to be reading uh, first, or 2 Samuel 11, the first 17 verses, and then it's not printed in your worship guide, but we're going to read verses 26 and 27 as well. Let me pray for us, and we'll read God's Word. Lord God, we thank you for your word, the truth of it. We thank you that this story is, is here and that we can, we can read it, that your word does not shy away from sin, but it, it shines a spotlight on our sin and our need for a savior. So we pray as we read your word that you would give us ears that hear, that Holy Spirit, you would enable us to understand that we would see our sin, that we would see our need for a savior. Bless this reading, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you're willing and able, I invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together. Beginning in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. They ravaged the Ammonites, besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, he was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman. One said, is this not, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a long journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths. My Lord Joab, the servants of my Lord are camping in an open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite died also. And in verse 26, 
When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when, when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This passage that we just read is a puzzling one. Um, we say, how can David, a man after God's own heart, how can he do such a thing? Well, the truth is, David is a sinner. This passage makes that crystal clear. The Bible, again, does not shy away from shining a spotlight on our brokenness and on our sin. David's a sinner. I'm a sinner. You are a sinner. We all need a Savior. That's the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is this. You're a bigger sinner than you think you are, and you desperately need a Savior. So as we look at the passage, i got three points that we're going to look at it under. Uh, the first one is the seduction of sin, the snowball effect of sin, and the Savior of sinners. Yeah, two S's, alliteration, you know, they, they teach this stuff at seminary. So let's look at uh, the seduction of sin. Uh, verse 1, we read that it was springtime, the time of the year when kings go out to war. And so David sent Joab and his army out to war with the Ammonites to lay siege to Rabbah. We read that David remained at Jerusalem. Now, laying siege to a city is basically, you know, you're, you're trapping the people in there behind the walls and you're just trying to starve them out and maybe uh, breach the walls. It's not the most exciting kind of battle. It's long. It takes a while. Um, and so David sends his army out under the leadership of Joab, and he remains back at Jerusalem. Now think about it. Who wants to camp out for who knows how long when you can stay back and enjoy life in the palace? I can understand that. My kids like to sleep out in the backyard. No way. I like my bed just fine. I'm not sleeping out on the ground back there. So David is is back, and kind of here's the deal with David. He's kind of at the height of power. You know, he's he has arrived. He is the king. He's worked hard, and and feels that it it might be time to sit back and enjoy the fruits of my labors. You know, he's probably thinking, I've worked hard. I've fought my battles. I mean, who knows what would happen if I hadn't taken care of Goliath. We'd all be Philistines right now or something. So I'm going to sit back. Joab has this. He's He's got this under control. I'm going to just sit back. Maybe I'll write a psalm or two. I don't know. But I'm going to hang out. And so here's David, and he gets up from a nice afternoon siesta, and he's walking around on the uh, roof of the palace, and he sees a woman bathing. 
She's beautiful. So David inquires about who she is. And, and the word comes back that this is Bathsheba. She's the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Now, that should have stopped David in his tracks right there, right? David, she's a, she's, she's married. Uh, not only that, but she's married to Uriah. Uriah, one of your, your mighty men, one of your loyal servants. Yeah, that's, that's, that's who she is, David. Is that stopping? No. And, and kind of, he's probably thinking, hmm, Uriah the Hittite, huh? I know where he is. He ain't here. He's out in battle. I can do this. I can get away with this. No one will ever know. So David sends, sends messengers, and he took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her in the biblical sense of the word. Do you see how seductive sin is? Sin comes to you and says, you deserve this. You've earned this. Have you ever said, I work hard. I deserve this. And that feeling of deserving becomes something more. I demand this. I know a guy who's nearing retirement, and he's started shirking some of his responsibilities at work. Uh, for example, he's supposed to attend some community breakfast for uh, the company as a representative of his company, but it's too early in the morning that breakfast is, and he'd rather, you know, sleep in a bit more, and after all, he's not really getting paid to attend this community breakfast. It's just a, as a representative of the uh, 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 company. So he's kind of justifying. They won't miss me. I don't need to go to that thing. Then some afternoons, he's thinking, you know what? My buddies are all going fishing. And then tomorrow we're playing golf. I'm cutting out a little bit early today because, after all, I've put in all these years. I've put in overtime at this company. I've earned a little bit of a break. And then the kicker comes in. What are they going to do? Fire me? I'm going to retire in a few weeks anyway. It doesn't matter. I've worked hard. I deserve a break. Just a side note. Retirement is dangerous. It really is. But it's not just retirement. Have you ever said, coming home from a long day's work, and you're coming up to the house, you're walking up to the door, and you're looking at your home? Yeah. I work hard for this. I... My, I've, I pay the mortgage on this home, and what a day I've had. Ugh. I deserve a nice, relaxing evening. And you walk in the door, and you're just like, I just need five minutes of peace and quiet. That's all I'm asking for. And, and, and it, you know, you're kind of walking up, and look at all I do for this house. I mean, look at that lawn. Isn't it great? This is awesome. And you walk in and the first thing you hear is, Dad, she hit me! 
No, dad, he, he called me a name. And like, it's just like World War III going on. Kids are just beating each other. And I mean, things are just flying. And you're just like, whoa, what happened? And, and you sit down and, you know, you take your shoes off and, and you start walking over to your chair because you're like, I just need five minutes of Sports Center. I gotta know, did LeBron go to Cleveland or not? And, you know, it's like the burning desire. That's all I need. And you're making your way over there. Kids are flying by and you step on a Lego. Yeah. Yeah. You understand, and and you just lose it. You flip out. You just start screaming. I deserve some peace and quiet. And you just start yelling at this kid. I worked hard all day. When I get home, I expect a little bit of peace and quiet. Leave me alone, so I can sit down and watch Sports Center. Is that too much to ask? Deserve this. I actually see some nods. This happens. Okay, good. Um, and the kids are crying, right? You just come in and the kids are crying. Can you relate to that at all? Or maybe you think, you know, I wish my husband would not just come in the door like this evil beast and start yelling and making the kids cry and then sit down in front of the television. He always talks about how hard he works, how hard he works to provide for us. But what about me? I work hard, too. This is my house, too, after all. And he doesn't appreciate all the work I do to make this place look nice. He's always talking about how great this house is. This house ain't so great. I mean, the neighbors have quartz countertops. I don't even have granite countertops. I deserve granite countertops. Right? Yeah. Wouldn't kill him also to maybe buy me some flowers every once in a while, would it? I deserve to be appreciated. Sin is seductive. It seduces us. It says, you deserve this. Look at all you do. You deserve this. And it becomes a thing that we demand in our lives. Sin seduces us. Not only does sin seduce us, but sin snowballs out of control. You see, we think we can manage sin well. And David seems to think that he can manage this pretty well. But it spirals out of control very quickly. Our text tells us in verse 5, the woman conceived and sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Bum, 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 right? I mean, not the first time those words have changed lives. Won't be the last either. But it's interesting what David does, how he responds to that. It's kind of like, no problem. I can take care of this. I got this under control. I am the king after all. So he sends word to Joab, you know, hey, send Uriah back to me. So here comes Uriah, David's a trusted, loyal soldier, one of David's mighty men. And he brings him back. And, and you've got this picture of these two guys kind of sitting around. David's inquiring about the war, you know, two buddies sharing old war stories. Together. Well, David, you know, tell me what's going on, Uriah. How are things going out there? 
And uh, David then gives him a gift and sends him home and says, Uriah, man, you've been away at battle for a long time. I think it's time for you to go home, just relax a little bit. You've been working hard, Uriah. You deserve a break. Go home. See your wife in the biblical sense of the word. And so Uriah leaves the king's house. And David is probably thinking, man, that was easy. He probably sat down and was, you know, that was, I can, I can do anything. Maybe his next psalm was going to be, you can tell everybody, I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man, right? I did this. I can do whatever I want. But what he doesn't take into account is that Uriah the Hittite is a pretty faithful guy. Instead of going home to his wife, Uriah sleeps at the door of the king's house. David's like, wait a second. The next day, he's like, you just came from a long journey. Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah's like, are you kidding me? The ark lives in a tent. Joab, your servants, they're camping out in an open field. I am not going to do something so wicked as to go to my house, eat and drink and lie with my wife. Not while everyone else is suffering to serve you. So David's kind of thinking, okay, okay, this is a little bit harder than I thought it would be. I know what I'll do. I'll just pull out my other secret weapon. I'll get him drunk, right? I'll get him drunk. Then he'll surely go home. And that doesn't work out either. A drunk Uriah, a drunk Uriah is more virtuous than a sober David. A drunk Hittite is more faithful than the man after God's own heart. This is getting out of control. So if David, or if Uriah won't go home, I only have one option left, right? Let's kill him. Kill him. And talk about cold-blooded. David sends Uriah back with a sealed note with his death warrant. Here, why don't you take your death warrant back to Joab for me? And what does he do? Uriah dutifully carries it back. David wants Uriah put on the front lines of the battle where the fighting is, you know, the heaviest. And, and, and he wants the troops, this is his plan, he wants the troops to all kind of back off and leave Uriah exposed. I think Joab's a little more shrewd and cunning because actually what happens is uh, we read that, that several of the servants of David uh, died as well in this battle. I mean, you don't want, it kind of looked a little fishy if they all just backed off and Uriah died. So let's just have some collateral damage. And with that, Uriah's dead. Problem solved. I mean, this is crazy. 
David looks like some mafia godfather. You know, he's probably sitting there telling everybody, it's not personal. It's business. It's not personal. The scary thing is, he thinks he's in control. He thinks he's in control of this whole situation. He's the one doing all the action. He's the sender. Sin has snowballed completely out of control. What has happened here? I mean, just it. wrap your mind around this. David, the man after God's own heart, coveted another man's wife. David stole that wife. David committed adultery. David committed murder. David, the man after God's own heart. David, the man who said, oh, how I love your law. Your law is sweeter than honey. Your law is my delight. This David breaks almost half the Ten Commandments right there. How could David have done this? I mean, you think about what we saw last week. What did David do? He welcomed Mephibosheth to his table. The heir of, I mean, one of his, his enemy's descendants. Yeah, come to my table. Love my enemies. I will welcome them. I will care for them. What happened? How did this guy become an adulterer, a murderer? I think we often read this story and we think, man, that's crazy. And that would never happen to me. That could never happen to me. My sin would never snowball out of control like that. Sin is so deceptive. Sin is so destructive. And we see sin everywhere. And and I think the big thing is we say, not me though. We turn on the news and we see these kind of sensational stories that are just shocking, right? A man intentionally leaves his child in the car, kills his child. That's Who does that? Or just this past week, uh, an estranged husband trying to find his family, he goes and kills his in-laws, just... What's going? What kind of monster does it? And we read, we we hear these stories, and we think, ah, not me. We say, you know, we we do. We ask, who does this? The deal is, the Bible says we're all sinners. The Bible says uh, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. That 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 our sinful condition actually deceives us. Our problem is we read the story and we think, how could David have done this? Our problem is we read the story and we think, I could never do this. We're good at denying sin because we think that we're more virtuous than others. That's that's kind of the big deal. That's how we usually prop ourselves up to, to deny our sin. Um, we say, you know, I'm not really that bad. I mean, I've got my flaws, but I'm not as bad as, as so-and-so. And, you know, I look at all I do. I actually care about the environment, right? I'm a, I'm a good, 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 good person. Um, I recycle. Yeah. When I see trash on the side of the road, I actually pick it up. I don't drive some 
Hummer. I drive a Prius. <laughs> Look at me. Or my favorite, I take the dart. Yeah. Yeah. I don't participate in all this animal cruelty or, or corporate farming. I only eat locally grown organic produce. I'm vegan. How about this one? I bought three items at the India auction last week. <laughs> I'm the man, I'm the man. Or, I didn't buy anything at the India auction last week. I just put a check in the offering plates. Even better. I homeschool my kids. Oh, yeah? I send my kids to private Christian school. Oh, yeah? I send my kids to public school because I want them to be a witness in the world. Right? We, we got all sorts of excuses. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I believe all those moms out there neglecting their families to work. Who do they think they are? I'm a working mom. I actually help support my family. can't believe all these moms who stay at home all day long. I work all day, and I still have to cook and clean and raise my kids. <laughs> Stay-at-home mom. You see, we have all sorts of strategies to make ourselves look good, and to deny the reality of our sinful condition. You've probably heard the story of, of uh, Adolf Eichmann. That's an old, old story. He was the, the, the mastermind, one of the masterminds behind the uh, Nazi Holocaust, and, and actually boasted about the fact that he was instrumental in Millions of people dying. That made him feel good about himself. Ugh. Right? And, and the story is of, of Yehiel Dinur was, was at the trial and he was an Auschwitz survivor. And he comes in and, 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 and he, he collapses on the floor as he is giving testimony towards Eichmann. And, Everyone's like, you know, what happened? Was he just, you know, overcome by the horror of evil that this man had done? Was he remembering all of the stuff that, that had happened? Was he overcome by his own hatred for how evil Eichmann was? Is that what caused him to collapse to the floor? And so, you know, there's this famous uh, 60 Minutes interview with the esteemed Mike Wallace. And Wallace, you know, asks him, what, what, what was it? What caused that to happen? And Eichmann, or uh, Denier is like, no, it was, he was so ordinary. The most evil person that I could possibly imagine looked like me, was absolutely ordinary. And he realized at that moment, there's no difference between him and me. The same evil that lives in him lives in me. That's a sensational story, but it's real. It's true. He realized that this evil is endemic to our condition, that any one of us could commit those same atrocities. So here's the reality. David's a better person than you are. 
David loves God more than you do. He does. Read the Psalms. I mean, he loves God and yet he did this. This should not be a shocking passage to us. This should be a sobering passage to us. Because you're a far bigger sinner than you dare to admit. This is the man after God's own heart. He is a better follower of God than you are. And look at what he did. This passage should not be shocking. It should show us our sin. It should remind us that we can't control our sin. Because the seed of every sin is indeed in our hearts. And the scariest thing of all is David thinks he's in control. And this is what happens when David's in control. It's scary. And if you read 26 and 27, it seems so matter of fact. You know, verse 27, when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. So matter of fact. Uriah's dead. David just brings Bathsheba into his house, and they live happily ever after. That's scary. It seems like David's gotten away with this whole thing. And you kind of think, where's God in all this? The last verse of the chapter, the last sentence of the chapter. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Literally, it was evil in God's eyes. David can't hide his sin from God. That is a problem. And and it's funny because as you read the Bible, and especially even this passage, did you notice how many times Bathsheba's name is mentioned? That's how the sermon is David and Bathsheba. It should be like David and the wife of Uriah. Because that's how she is normally referred to in the Scripture. She's like If you look at the New Testament, her name is in the genealogy of Jesus as Solomon's mother. And how is she referred to? The wife of Uriah. It's like this, this stinging reminder. David is an adulterer and a murderer. That's what you hear when you hear the wife of Uriah. This is not his wife. No, this is the wife of Uriah. In the genealogy of Jesus, we're reminded of David's sin. Can't hide our sin from God. That's a problem. We're bigger sinners than we think we are. That's a problem. So what do we do with our sin problem? The good news is Ethan's got chapter 12 next week. So there is, please come back for the rest of the story. But um, the, the truth is there is a Savior for sinners. God doesn't just leave us in our sin, but he sends a Savior. God knows our sin. He knows how sinful we are. He knows our sinful condition far better than we do. The Bible says God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In our our New Testament reading this morning, we saw that, that, that Jesus was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Why was Jesus tempted in the wilderness? You know, Hebrews says that he suffered when he was tempted, so he's able to help those who are being tempted. What does that mean? Does does that just mean that Jesus is an example for us 
to follow? Should I just ask myself, you know, what would Jesus do in this situation? No. Jesus is not just an example. Jesus is our Savior. He came and lived the life that you could not live. He came and lived the perfect life for you. We often think, you know, Jesus came and he died for my sins. No. Far more than that. He lives for you. He lived a life without sin. He was tempted in every way, just as you are. Yet he was without sin. And the sinless Jesus went to the cross and he paid the penalty for your sin. He died in your place. He took the punishment you deserve. And he rose again. Victory over death. Here's the deal. Your sins are forgiven. But the good news of the gospel is far more than that. Jesus lived the perfect life for you. He didn't just die for you. He lived for you as well. I mean, what do you think he was doing for 32 years? Why didn't he just, he just came to die. Why didn't he get it over with? No, he came to live a righteous life for you so that you might be clothed in his righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel. You are beloved. You are forgiven of your sins. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You're an adopted child. Maybe sitting there going, okay, yeah, how does that help me fight sin? How does that help me practically fight sin? That's the key. You are far, uh, or, well, the more you see your sin, the more you see how much you need a Savior. The more honest you are about your brokenness, the more earnest you will be to cling to Jesus. The more you can sing, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, the more you can say, here's my heart, take and seal it. I need you, just tether it to you, Lord. Seal it for your courts above. The more you see God's love for you, the more you believe that you are his beloved child, the more you believe you have the righteousness of Christ, the more you will hate your sin. The more you will seek to eradicate sin in your life. Jesus has won victory over sin. When you see sin in your life, you don't just sweep it under the rug. You take it to the cross where it's been paid for. Jack Miller used to say, cheer up. You're a bigger sinner than you think you are. God's love for you is greater than you dare to hope. Is your sin great? Yeah. But God's grace is greater than all your sin. God's love for you is greater than the wickedness of your heart. Believe in that. Live in that reality for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord God, our sin, our rebellion is so prevalent. It's real. It deceives us. seeks to destroy us. Yet we thank you for your grace because it trumps it all. We thank you for your kindness. Or we thank you that you know us. You know our sin, yet you still sent your son to be our savior. 
Thank you, Jesus, for the forgiveness of sin. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin and point us back to you and the good news of the gospel. Help us to believe this good news, to be continually reminded of this, rooted in this reality, that we may walk in holiness for your glory. Amen.